Hello, I'm Michael Watson, publisher for History at Cambridge University Press, and today I'm talking to Jonathan Fennell, Senior Lecturer in Defence Studies at King's College London and the author of Fighting the People's War, the British and Commonwealth Armies and the Second World War. The book was published last Thursday and has been greeted with, already with considerable acclaim, with a review in History of War magazine describing it as incredibly well-researched, brilliantly written, and quite frankly, an outstanding book. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Jonathan. I thought we'd start by, um, I think one of the, the sort of most remarkable things about the book is the underlying source base, um, which really um, marks it out. And for listeners, so the book's um, based on these um, censorship reports um, and reports submitted by commanders. Um, and I think you note in the book that there, there are sort of 925 censorship summaries based on a reading of approximately 17 million soldiers' letters across the various theatres. And so, you know, perhaps you could say something about the kinds of insights this material brings to the book and how, how, how it changes our view of the war. I mean, it's the kind of dreamy thing that happens for an historian when you find a whole set of sources that haven't really been inter interrogated before and that allow you to really engage with a big question in a new way. So these censorship summaries um, were compiled from soldiers' letters, as you quite rightly point out. Soldiers write home, they write to each other, um, and these letters are censored and turned into weekly and bi-weekly morale reports, effectively. And these reports are based, the ones that I found are based on about 17 million letters, and they give this incredible insight into the day-to-day -day attitudes, feelings, motivations of those individuals who are tasked with fighting the people's war. And they give a very different perspective than the one that we are used to. So we're all used to the Churchillian narrative, the story of the great generals. And now we can get inside the head of the individual who was actually tasked with fighting. And that's a really, really exciting thing. And, and I would point out, like, the book does use and engage with all the traditional sources a military historian engages with, commander's reports, after-action reports, etc. But by engaging with these new sources, I would argue... Um, we get a very new history. And so what kinds of things, so in, in terms of the sensors then, so see, seeing the types of things they're looking for, they're recording, so what sort of aspects um, are they particularly sort of concerned about or interested in? Well, first and foremost, they're worried about security, right? They don't want the soldiers giving away secrets. But once that process has been ticked, that box has been ticked, then they're asking questions of what's going on in the soldiers' minds. So commanders want to kind of weaponize, if you will, morale. If they know that the soldiers are in a good form, then they can be aggressive. If there's issues, they need to be addressed. But beyond that, there's an enormous kind of narrative about politics, social change, um, views of others, be they enemies, allies, local people. So there's this really rich and deep kind of levels of information that can be garnered from these reports. And the social change one is, I'm sure we'll talk about it in due courses, kind of the social attitudes of the soldiers is something that really comes out very strongly through the book. Yes, I mean, I, I think that's um, one of the most striking things about the book is, because um, I, I publish a lot of traditional military history, I publish war and society, but they, they tend to be quite siloed. Uh, and quite separate literatures. And I, I, don't, I don't know quite why that is or quite, you know, why it's relatively rare for people to bring those two parts together. 
Well, I mean, in part, it's an issue of scale. I mean, it's a big project bringing the two together. But I think more than that, it's really a question of sources, coming back to sources again. Um, there is a there is a big literature out there on war and social change, but it typically looks at the home front. How does the experience of war on the home front influence the political attitudes of citizens? But it's very hard to to find information that allows us to understand how war politicizes or influences the political opinions of a occupational class, if you will, such as the soldier. I mean, it'd be hard to write a history of how, you know, carpenters and social change. Well, to write a history of soldiers and social change or armed force personnel and social change, you need to know what armed force personnel are thinking. So the censorship summaries are incredible in this regard in that they go into great depth because the authorities cared about the political attitude of the troops. But in trying to find these censorship summaries, right, there's kind of an interesting story here in just the process of writing the book. Um, so I went away to, to to find these sources. I'd found them for my first book with Cambridge, uh, Combat and Morale in the North African Campaign, and I hoped that I could find them again for this bigger study. So off I went to New Zealand and South Africa and Australia to find these sources. Um, but those the archives in those countries aren't always um, equipped with the most the, the best digital kind of search engines. So I went back to the paper um, indexes and started working my way through the paper indexes in these archives. And when you do that, it's a bit old school, it's a bit time consuming, you start to discover all these other wonderful sources that you never dreamed existed. And I was sitting in an archive in New Zealand when I came across uh, a file name, Report on the General Election in 1943 in the Middle East. I thought, goodness me, what is that? So I ordered it up and there were the voting statistics for soldiers in the 1943 New Zealand general election. So not only now could I kind of plot their attitudes through the censorship summaries, but there were statistics there to actually ascertain how those attitudes manifested in voting behaviours. So I was able to replicate that for Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, um, Canada, and to a lesser extent um, the United Kingdom, the elections in those countries during the war. And that was very, very exciting. Yes, because I, I think, um, as you say, there's so much focus on the home front. I mean, we tend to think of you know sort of war and welfare, Labour's victory after the war, and this this sort of transformative experience. And quite clearly, people have you know seen soldiers as transformed in that, but haven't focused on the kind of soldiers' experience in the same way. And I mean, you, you talk about um, you know it's, it's really um, having motivated soldiers and about the legitimacy of democracy dependent on it, you know, it's, is integral to its ability to mobilise the troops. And so do you think, you know, where did that sit at the outbreak of the war in terms of soldiers' attitude towards, towards their kind of respective states? Yeah, it's one of the aspects of the book I found most intriguing, uh, engaging with this issue of mobilization. So the story of the Second World War, especially in Britain, is often told in a very positive light and, you know, in many ways quite rightly so. Finest hour of Britain and its empire standing up against tyranny and, you know, to, to a degree the narrative goes saving the world. There's also, though, a, a much less kind of celebrated story of the end of empire, um, you know, massive and humiliating defeats in the first half of the war. And trying to get to grips with why these things happened was, is a central kind of theme in the book. And the argument that I develop is that in many cases, the soldiers really struggled to find a cause that they could connect with. They had there was this disconnect between the soldier and the state. So I look at who who fought, you know, who who actually ended up 
on the front line. Um, so I do some social class um, studies. Um, and what we find, it's the working class and the lower middle class, those very individuals who've had the worst of the depression, who've suffered most. And then when it comes to the war, they're asked to sacrifice everything for the survival of the state. And they say, well, what has the state done for me in the last 10, 15, 20 years? And so this dynamic develops where we have a, a kind of under-motivated working class and lower middle class army that doesn't necessarily feel a connection with the state. And because the state has mobilized late to address the, the threat of Nazism, you don't have a particularly well-trained army and you have now this slightly under-motivated army and they underperform. So you can't understand the behavior of armies on the battlefield outside of understanding the character of the society that provides the individuals for those armies. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if we look at the, if we look at sort of military performance, um, you know, one, one traditionally sees the Second World War as something a, a game of two halves um, in <laughs> terms of, you know, the sort of improvement in the second half, issues of morale in the first half. So is, is there a kind of learning curve equivalent to the First World War, say, in terms of, um, in terms of morale, soldiers, motivation? I, there's certainly a very dramatic and um, uplifting story about you know, disaster to, to victory. Um, and that is, you know, essential again to the story of the book. So things do go horribly wrong. You're quite right. And there's a process of lessons learned for sure. Um, reflection. Sometimes it's very, very painful. And there is a recognition that a the morale of the troops is an issue, and they address it through various mechanisms that I go into in great deal in the de in the book. Um, there's a recognition that training is problematic and insufficient, um, and that weapons are not always. Um, as, as good as they need to be. And over the course of, you know, 1942, 1943, and I think we're all familiar with Montgomery and his contribution in turning things around in North Africa and um, before Alamein, there is this dramatic turnaround. And the second half of the book is then all about how they try to, you know, they try to convert this turnaround into really meaningful um, and dramatic success in the battlefield. And it's a hard old slog. And in many ways, they don't achieve... Um, the goals that they set out to achieve, which is the quick and decisive victory over Germany with the British armed forces at the centre of that narrative. And because it takes so long, the argument goes, Britain's place in the world gradually um, starts to slide and the second half of the 20th century becomes an American century, whereas the first half of the 20th century had been a British um, a British story. And is that is that something to do with... so? I guess another distinctive feature is writing a Commonwealth history, a British mm. and Commonwealth history, and looking looking at all the troops. And so, is there a sense that the the Commonwealth, as the war goes on, sort of Commonwealth troops, you know, with America coming in, they, they British leadership starts to kind of erode. Yeah, I mean, so if there's three themes to the book, one is this story of great battles won and lost, Britain's contribution to defeating the Axis, then. Related to that is this story of the end of empire, because most big histories on the British Empire, its rise and fall, focus on 1940, 1942, um, and all the way to 1945 as this crucial moment in the demise of the British Empire. So as a consequence of, you know, at times less than spectacular performance, yes, um, the Commonwealth starts to fracture to a degree. Um, Australia and New Zealand start to look to the United States for protection because it's quite clear that Britain can't protect them against Japanese aggression. 
and Britain becomes bankrupt as a consequence of the length of the war and the amount it's borrowing from the United States. It needs the war to end quickly and to be seen to be victorious um, or to be central to that story as it was in 1918. So the story of the end of empire is linked to the story of great battles and therefore it makes a lot of sense to combine the two. And what about... um... You know, the Commonwealth Army fighting as a Commonwealth Army. I think you know, mm. in, um, in the conclusion, you talk about the Indianization of the army in India with the in- introduction of equal pay for Indian officers. Was, was there a sense that, the, yeah, the British, you know, how the British treated the rest of the Commonwealth changed over the course of the war? Yeah. So, I mean, if you start off with, with a series of armies that at times have a, yeah, that, are, that are manned by individuals who have a relatively weak connection with the state, the, the recognition kind of grows that then we need to find a new way to make this this organization work effectively. So there's a professionalization, a process of professionalization, and that really hinges around training. So, you know, an Indian army that is woefully inadequate um, in the first half of the war ends up being a truly impressive um, martial tool by 1945. And so you have Indian soldiers who are treated with more respect. I mean, not going to say that it's completely equal but there is a there is a shift um, and a recognition that you have to treat everybody with respect and um, that improves morale for sure there's a fast training uh, you know system set up in 1942-1943 to really develop confidence and skills so that Indian the Indian army can tackle the Japanese in the jungle so it's really quite a dramatic um, story and you know fairness respect um, equality, all these things really, really matter. If you're going to ask people to make sacrifices for the state or for the institution, the state and the institution has to pe- treat people appropriately. And as that recognition grew, you could argue, and I do argue, the effectiveness of the British and Commonwealth armies improved. So that that is something that very much chimes with, with that traditional story of democracy v fascism. I mean, I think it, it's difficult, you know, I don't think there are any books, you know, of this kind of scale and necessarily looking at this precisely on the on the axis side but you know there, there we have a kind of a, a mirror image you know with the, the much more effective opening years of the war and then you know more problems as the war as the war came on is it possible to draw any conclusions from that that state strength is intimately related with domestic legitimacy um, that if you have a cohesive society that society is more likely to mobilize with energy when the state is threatened. So how we order our politics today influences how effective the state might defend itself in a decade, in two decades, in three decades' time. So kind of narratives of social justice, fairness, inclusivity um, are important, you know, for ethical reasons and philosophical reasons, but also they're really quite practical. They are absolutely essential um, to state survival. And so if we look at this across the Commonwealth, so do we see, I mean, are, are there particular nuances, you know, um, you know, country to country, or, or was, the, was, was it broadly the this, this same sort of progression across the war? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of to look at some of the differences. I mean, the overwhelming narrative is how similar the experience was, that combat does very similar things to human beings, no matter what side they're on or who they're fighting with. And um, so... 
I argue in the book that the experience of combat develops this recognition of how interconnected citizens, citizen soldiers are. You can't, you know, if you're, if you're sitting in a slit trench somewhere in Northwest Europe, you become very quickly aware that your welfare depends not only on the individual to your left and right, but also to an individual who you've never met in Bradford building weapons. So this recognition of shared destiny, the need for team becomes very apparent. And so across the Commonwealth, we see very similar voting behaviours. Um, the closer to combat individuals are, um, the more likely they are to vote for left-leaning um, political agendas, political parties. Now, this can have, you know, arguably depending on your political perspective, positive outcomes. So um, the soldiers vote overwhelmingly for Labour in the United Kingdom election of 1945. And I argue in the book that this is absolutely central to explaining Labour's victory. And Labour's victory leads to very serious social change post-1945. Um, in 1943 in New Zealand, the Labour Party would have lost or at least drawn the 1943 election, but for the votes of those soldiers fighting in the Middle East. It's fascinating. Um, as they waited for the votes to arrive, all the statistics suggested that Labour was going down. And then when the votes arrived from the Middle East, Labour was saved. So it wasn't just you know North Africa that the, Middle, that the second New Zealand ex expeditionary force saved, it was also the New Zealand government. So those are kind of positive stories, as I say, depending on your political perspective. There's also very negative aspects to it. So in South Africa, the the combat cohesion that developed as a consequence of the experience of the front line between Afrikaans-speaking and English-speaking South Africans didn't um, didn't manifest for black South Africans because they were excluded from the, the front line forces. They weren't allowed to be armed. And over time, um, this sense of brotherhood that developed between the previously antagonistic white races in South Africa um, gradually led to an understanding that for them to function together as a team, they had to, or the argument went, they had to exclude another aspect of, the, of South African society. Um, so the experience of combat cohesion led to social cohesion um, for those who experienced or a desire for social cohesion. In the case of South Africa, it led, I argue in the book, to white veterans voting for the nationalists in the 1948 election. And again, that that vote could well have been decisive in winning the election for the nationalists and institutionalizing apartheid in South Africa. So very much less positive, a very negative, in fact, um, story. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you can see, I mean, it, reading the book, it's, it's, it's very clear what's happening. But it, it's not clear that the sort of political leadership necessarily recognized it. There was a kind of expectation things could almost return to power. Churchill, you know, sort of expecting that he would be returned to power and... Um, you know, things would almost carry on with, you know, sort of minor mm. tweaks. So, yeah, was there a sense that the, you know, that the, the upper echelons um, of yeah. society, of the states, weren't necessarily um, understanding what was happening? Yeah, I mean, Churchill was a man of great vision. No one can take that away from him. He sympathised with the plight of the working classes. He was certainly not, as we know, of the working classes. And, and his sense was that, okay, right, social change is all well and good but we're in the middle of a global crisis here we don't have time to talk about this right now and that really irritated the ordinary soldier so the beverage report is released towards the end of 1942 and you know listeners might be aware that that is the the blueprint really of the of the welfare state and the soldiers get wind of this and they think this is it this is fantastic okay promise us a post-war world where we have jobs houses 
and some sort of a safety net if we get sick, etc., and we will fight with all the determination in the world. And Churchill doesn't really get this. He's, you know, he, he and the Conservative Party benches basically the beverage report, and this really irritates the troops and takes away from them, um, you know, something really powerful to unite them to motivate them in the war. And so, in part, you can explain 1945, the landslide victory for Labour, um, in light of the soldiers' disillusionment as a consequence of Churchill's refusal to support beverage. And what about the sort of process of demobilisation then? You know, it was, um, I can't remember the precise extent to which you, you treat that in the book. Um, to a degree. I mean, certainly we're looking at post-1945 in the case of, say, the 1948 South African election, but also in the case of the 1947 um, partition of India. And so I look um, at how Indian veterans influenced the the outcome of those you know, fairly terrible events, you know, a lot of life, um, a lot of life lost. And it's quite interesting to see how the patterns of partition were influenced by veterans and the bloodletting of partition was influenced by veterans. So in those, in those parts of India, I mean, I, I suppose I should take a step back and just quickly say what was going on. So British India basically comes to a, to an end as a consequence of the war. There's a promise of independence um, and there's a desire now for two states where there had been one, India and Pakistan, instead of the British Raj. And so they're, they're trying to work out where are the, the borders between these, these two new states going to lie. And so violence starts to erupt along potential borders as um, kind of what the reality on the ground is, is, is the idea that if, they can, if in one side can get hold of a piece of ground, it'll be part of their new country. So it's violent, it's dynamic, mm. um, and veterans play a role in in the population movement that ensues. So Hindus who are, are in the new Pakistan try to move to the new India and Muslims in the new India try to move to the new Pakistan. And it's violent, it's dynamic. And where there were um, vast numbers of veterans, typically there was less violence and population movements worked more efficiently because of the organizational skills that veterans had developed or learned as a consequence of the war. So the experience of the war the performance of soldiers during the war influences the fates of great nations, great empires, and also the great events that happened post-1945, be it in elections in the United Kingdom, South Africa, Canada, or in the way partition um, worked out uh, on the subcontinent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, if we look sort of comparatively with the First World War, I think it's interesting because it's seen as the, the, the veterans, you know, perhaps traditionally seen as a kind of right-wing force after the, mm. in the aftermath of the First World War. So it's interesting that it, 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 it seems somewhat different after the Second World War. I was surprised, I have to say. Um, you know, there's, there's some research also on, say, the influence um, of or the political inclinations of Israeli soldiers more recently. Um, and again, that seems to point towards right-wing inclinations. So my, my hope is um, that one of the next studies I'm going to do is to look at this radicalization process uh, among armies across the 20th century and, me and maybe even earlier to see what kind of patterns emerge. Um, was this just something unique about the 1940s, a left-leaning moment, a corporatist socialist moment, or is there something um, that we can generalize, theorize about in terms of how experience of violence affects the political inclinations of citizen soldiers yeah well i think what your book shows us is you know the two things are sort of inseparable aren't they that there's the um the actual experience of war 
but then there's also these surrounding sort of political social contexts um, and that the two are, are completely inseparable. I couldn't agree more. You can't understand the behaviour of armies on the battlefield outside of the context of the home front. What's going on? Is there cohesion? And then you can't understand post-war or kind of domestic issues without understanding how citizen soldiers on the front line are experiencing their universe. The, the two are interlinked. There's, there isn't a home front and a separate battlefront. The two are interlinked intimately. Um through soldiers' letters, through leave. And when we start to look at the kind of web, the interconnections, the vast complexity, I think we get a much better idea, not only of how great battles are won and lost, but also how political and social change occurs. Well, I think that's that's an excellent sort of moment to sum up, really, because I, I think that's a great summary of, of the book. Um, we've covered an, an enormous amount of ground, but, but I think barely scratched the surface in terms of the book. Um, you know, just, as we both know, it's... Uh, it's a massive um, book, sort of physically, but in underlying research, and I think its impact is going to be um, similarly great. Any listeners keen to learn more can, of course, buy a copy of the book, which is available now. So thank you very much, Jonathan, for your time and for those very interesting insights into the book. Thank you, Michael.